Well, hey there, everybody. I hope you guys are all having a good day. I'm going to get straight to the mustard, all right? We're going to be talking a little bit about sin. Here's why. I was having a little discussion with somebody. It was an argument. The fellow was a outspoken atheist and had, you know, no small amount of critiques for Christianity as a whole, but that's not the point. After a couple hours, what it wound up culminating in, because I had used the words freedom and liberty uh, in discussions about Christianity itself, and he couldn't wrap his head around this. And I don't know that I articulated it well. I, I think I sort of did at the end, but maybe not. He couldn't wrap his head around the idea that Christianity could be a freeing idea because he viewed the Bible as a set of rules. And that's it. A set of arbitrary rules made by what he perceived to be a fake, but if not fake, a grumpy, angry God, throwing out rules for us to follow, and the rules could be changed on a dime, and all the rules are applicable at any given time. That sort of idea. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? So, it, it, it ought to lead into a discussion. What, what are these rules? Why do we have rules? Is it simply because, and here it would be, by the way, it would be a good enough reason if the rules were because God said so. But I don't think that's what they are. As far as I can tell, the rules are there for our own good. And when we say rules, remember, the Bible's not a rule book. It's a story from which we can glean rules. We can glean understandings of what God wants from us, what we ought to do, and why we ought to do it. And then we also have examples of what it looks like when it's done. But it's not simply like the Code of Hammurabi, a, a law book from the ancient Near East. The Quran reads a little more like that. The Quran reads more like a set of do this, do this, do this, do this. The Bible has stories about people telling other people do this, do this, do this. You see? Okay. So keep that in mind as we move forward. Because I want to try and understand what sin actually is. And I want to... Concept, get, get the concept in your head that sin itself is not the, simply the violation of a rule that upsets God. Sin itself is what's harming you. Okay. Now, a good place to start, I think, is with the nature of humanity. You, you all know this. You all read this. Presumably. The Genesis story. We're all creating the image of God. So fundamentally, that's we're all equal, but we're called to be reflections of God's divine light and love. In the same way that a statue of something is meant to point you towards that thing. You look at the statue, you get reminded of the thing it's an, a representation of. We're supposed to be something that you can look at and be reminded of the the creator of the universe. So that's our fundamental nature. So anything we do to fall short of accurately representing what ought to remind people of God, 
is going to be something like sin. It's distorting and warping and corrupting ourselves because we're images. If you view your entire life like that, a lot of the sins will probably make a little bit more sense. I think it's a useful way of, of, of looking at sin. So, obviously, if you look at the Old Testament, we are given a set of written commands. Well, Moses was, and he handed them to the people. But what was God's plan all along? Well, if you're a Christian, you believe that the plan all along was to bring the Messiah. Jesus says he's the fulfillment of the law. He is here to bring the law to its fullness, to give you the, which in a Jewish context, might not be meant to be taken as the termination, the, the end point of the law, the story coming to an end. You could also understand it as the idea that you are accurately interpreting the law. You're the accurate representation of the law. Because as far as I know, in ancient Jewish culture, this was sort of a saying, oh, you fulfilled the law. You fulfilled the law, I mean, you're, you're doing justice to the law. You're accurately representing it. So when Jesus comes and he's in the book of Matthew, he's talking to the people. He says, hey, I didn't come to, to abolish the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill. So he came to set the law in proper order. And so what does he do? If we're taking it at his word and he's giving us the law as it's meant to be, the law itself was not meant to be a written set of simple things like don't commit adultery. He takes don't commit adultery and says if you commit lust, that's adultery. If you have unjust anger towards a brother, that's murder. So he's taking what is a matter of action that can be simply obeyed to the written letter and making it a matter of the heart. Now, there's precedence for this. If you look in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 29, 13, he references this, right? He, when, he, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, he says uh, that Isaiah prophesied well, for they, prof they, uh, they, they worship him with their mouths, but their hearts are far from him. This is a reference to the book of Isaiah. And so in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah already makes the clarification that you're not simply to perform actions with your heart being not in them. If you do something and you don't believe, it doesn't help you. If you do something and you hate doing it, let's say that you are giving thanks to God, right? You're, you're in church and you're called to pray. And in your heart, you're like, this is stupid. Even in the Jewish context, and we, 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 we as Christians, we like to say, oh, gee whiz, the Jews, they didn't understand this matter of the heart stuff. No, no, they, they should have. The Pharisees, as far as Jesus was concerned, were clearly not uh, operating in accordance with this principle, but it was there in the Jewish ether. Your heart does need to be in the things you do. So if you're at church and you're called to pray and you say, yeah, this is stupid, well, guess what? Even 2,000 years ago, more than 2,000, you would have been violating the law. You would have been displeasing God. That wouldn't have been a fulfillment of the law. So Jesus came to kind of set the record straight. He says, hey, this is what the law is supposed to be. 
You're missing the point. If you're just not over here sleeping with your neighbor's wife, that's not avoiding adultery. The point of the written law was so that you could look past it. In the same way, you are an image of God. We are, people are supposed to look past us and see God. We're supposed to look at the written law and see the principles behind it, right? That's why of the, the, in the Jewish tradition, there was the Ten Commandments, but all 613 commandments are stemmed from just the Ten. And in the Shema, there's two, love of God, love neighbor. Jesus boils it down to these two. In the book of James, it gets boiled down to just one, love neighbor. So all these things are stemming from common points. So as we look at the law, we're supposed to be not looking at the specific rule of if you do, if you, if it's, if you're a leper and you need to commit an atone, you need to have an atoning sacrifice. You need to commit it in this way, and here's the you cut off this particular part of the animal. What if you're doing that? You need to understand. You need to be thinking. What is this for? Because let's take a sacrifice for example. It's not to add to God. Saint Augustine talks about this. There's nothing God gains from sacrifice. It's meant for our benefit. It's meant for us to feel something and experience something like a loss. And Jesus want, does this with lust, with anger. He wants us to look and see what is the understanding behind these things. And then he clarifies well, what is meant to be understood by all the law. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on the two great commandments, love God and love neighbor. He even gives us a very simple way to read the golden rule. I mean, we talk about the golden rule these days. Just do unto others as you would have others do unto you. He simplifies things so much because behind the complexities of the law and the complexities of the Bible is actually a very simple, simple message. A hard to perform, but simple to understand message. Love others, love God. Get over yourself and love others. All right, let's kind of go back. You're an image of God. And to sin is to degrade and warp yourself. Well, if you believe the statement that man and woman were created in the image of God, that doesn't just apply to you, it applies to everybody. So if what's behind every single law is love neighbor, then all sins are a violation of loving the neighbor. Now, why might that be something that upsets your state, your spiritual state? Well, because it's if you actually believed that every single person, even the most wicked sinner, was what God claimed they are, an image of God, then you would you would treat them with the kind of respect that they, that they, are, they deserve. You'd treat them as though they're something special and sacred and worth fighting for. Now that's not to say you're not going to encounter wicked people. Murderers, rapists, whatever. They are the most tragic cases because they're an image of God that's been so corrupted that it's unrecognizable, so warped and ugly. And it's not your job to judge them. And here's how you can avoid judging them. Recognize what they are. There's something that is at its core meant to be good and has distorted through either societal, cultural, or personal choice some sort of influence has been distorted, probably through multiple uh, in multiple ways. 
into something unrecognizable. That's a huge tragedy. And you'll see that if you adopt this mindset, it becomes a lot easier to not want to mistreat people and not want to hate the people who do wrong to you. Because you'll see, one, you'll see your own uh, proclivity to doing similar things. Maybe not directly. Maybe you're not going out and killing people. But man, maybe you're a really angry person. You sit in traffic, you just curse people out. In that moment when you're sitting in traffic, are you thinking of these, look at all these beautiful images of God. Look at them. Having as bad a day as me. No, you're like, get the heck out of my way, you stupid idiot. It's not good. Okay, so if you're able to view other people as the image of God, if you believe that, then you can see why adhering to the law of loving neighbor would be important. So I, I use the, the description of corrupting and distorting your own image. So if you are meant to be a reflection of God, what does this mean for, 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 the, for the atonement, for us as Christians, for our Christian freedom? Now, you'll be told Christ died for your sins. But what does that actually mean? Does that mean he died because somebody needed to be punished? You'll hear the wages of sin is death. You'll definitely hear that. that that's, Paul says that. The wages of sin is death. But does that translate to God is very upset Somebody's got to take the fall. There's going to be some hell to pay for the sins that have been committed by the world. Tap Jesus, tag Jesus in. He'll come and he'll take the fall for all of us. Mm -mm. And this isn't just me. This is N.T. Wright. Take it up with him, the foremost New Testament scholar in the world. This is not the way that we're meant to conceptualize Christ's atonement. So. Let's let's look at let's look at the book of Romans. Paul says in Romans six. So what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Now listen, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? We are dead to sin. That's not just we're dead to the consequence of sin. The consequence. Listen here. The consequence to sin is wrapped up in sin itself, you understand? So it's, you can't separate sin and death. We need to understand this. I talked in a previous podcast about the idea of sin being to turn away from God. But I want to, I want to restate that analogy because I, I do like it. So it was, it was in the uh, Love podcast. Think of light and shadow, or light and darkness. Darkness is not a thing. Darkness is simply the absence of light. Cold is not a thing opposite and equal to light or to hot. Cold is the absence of heat. There is absolute zero and then everything is hotter than that. This is the same thing with life and with love, which, are the, which is God. There is no life and there is life. God is the source of life. There is, uh, and it's the same thing with love. Hatred is not its own thing. Hatred is an absence of love. This is important to understand because the devil, he can't offer you anything. He can offer you no things, literally nothing. 
He is offering you the to follow him in turning away from things. Because things come from God. Unthings, non-things, are just turning away from God. So when you sin, you're just turning the opposite direction of God. That's it. You understand? So this idea that you have committed sin, now there is God is going to impose a consequence on you. No, the consequences is wrapped up in sin itself because sin is walking away from God's life. You're walking towards death, literally. You're giving up a bit of your own life. Every time you sin, you're giving away life. You're handing it right off, willingly or unwillingly, unintentionally maybe. So, what else does Paul say? Know ye not that so many of us who, as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. It's important. We're baptized into his death. Now, N.T. Wright has talked about this idea of Christ's death being... There's one interpretation. There's one interpretation of the atonement that goes like this. And so he, he doesn't stand behind this, but he's the one who brought it to my attention, so I'm going to give him credit. The scriptures and the law were sort of a way, because Paul says we only learn of sin from the law, right? We only became aware of sin through the law. To, the scriptures and the law were to lure, they were an effort over millennia, to lure all sin and focus it on one central point, and then to make a mockery of it, to crucify sin itself. Christ's death was the death of the flesh and the death of the power that sin has over us. It had a vice grip on mankind, and Jesus in front of the entire world made a mockery of it and put it to death and said, sin has no power over me. You, it's, you can't, I won't commit sin, and I don't need to. And I'm going to die without sin, and then in this death, my glorification will come, and new life will be found. All right. Paul tells us, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. This is the death of the flesh. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. He was buried. He was killed. We need to bury this old life. This is what it means to be born again, folks. Bury this old life and be born again. Death of the carnal body, the flesh, and birth into the spiritual body. Now, I'm not saying commit suicide. God forbid. But your carnal mindedness is what you need to abandon. This is further expanded in Romans 7. Romans 7 verse 6. Paul doesn't say that to be carnally minded results in death. To be carnally minded is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law. It is important. Neither indeed can be. There in the flesh can't please God. Folks, this is important. You can't integrate the flesh and goodness. You can't integrate carnal mind and Christianity. They don't mesh. 
because to have the worldly and carnal mindset is the mindset in opposition to God. There's not two separate things that can be integrated here. There is one thing. It is life. Now, either you're choosing to walk towards it or walk away from it. You can't do both. You can't walk both directions at the same time. That's the point here. So, what does Paul call us to do? Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin, this the carnal mind, the flesh, might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. This is not saying, guys, I don't know, I, this is a, it's a weird interpretation when Jesus died for our sins. It's weird to say he just died for the consequence. You know, he died to free us from sin itself. Sin has power over us. So when you say, I am no servant of sin, I'm a servant of Christ. And then you say, so that means, guys, I can sin all I want. I'm not a servant of it. Well, no. No, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, if you were sons of Abraham, you do the works of Abraham. But we know who your father is. And by the way, he's talking about the devil. He, if you do the will of the devil by doing by committing sin, you're serving him. If you serve sin, you serve the devil. If you commit sins, you're serving sin. He that is dead is freed from sin. Let your carnal mind die. This is what Paul's calling us to do. Let the carnal mind die. Let all the sins of the world be focused in, in, on your carnal mind and then abandon your love of your body. Abandon your love of your carnal mind. And that is freedom. Saying, I don't need it. To the point, folks, of death. That's what Christ did. If we be dead with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. Verse 8. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. Now this is important. He was raised from the dead. He was raised from the death of the flesh, which we thought was the final death. But death has no more dominion over him. Oh, what does that mean? Well, Paul expands. <clears throat> in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. His first death, his death of the flesh, was he didn't commit sin. He let all the force of sin try their darndest to do what they could to corrupt him, to change him, to harm him. And all they wound up doing was killing the flesh and freeing him from it. And he was glorified. They have no more power over him. He made a mockery of sin itself. He made a mockery of the devil. Now let's skip a little bit. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God, as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. This is important, verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. You're not under the law, but under grace. We're not under the written law anymore. We've been freed from the Mosaic law, and we're under grace. What then? Verse 15. Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? God forbid. Okay. Now, I want to pause. I want to make a note because the next verse might change the way that you perceive 
some sort of a common Christian thought. Verse 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. This a restatement of what I already said, but doesn't this kind of this, this might modify the way we think of things, right? If you are still continuing to live in sin, you're still serving sin. He's talking to a Christian audience here, and he's warning them. Folks, you can still fall under death. You can still abandon life because you have the ability to turn away. You're under grace. He's already told them they're under grace. They're a Christian audience. He says, you guys are under grace. But if ye continue to sin, you're servants of sin. And sin leads to death. Sin itself is death. Sin is turning away from life. So, of course, it's death. It only makes sense. Verse 18. Being then made free from sin, ye became servants of righteousness. You're free from sin. Being Christian, you don't have the ability to point and say, Ha ha, I can do the things I want. Because I've been freed from the consequences of sin. No, you've been freed from sin itself, which also means you don't get to look at the things Jesus says and say, holy smokes, those are impossible. They're impractical. It's not natural. Right? How are we going to know, sir, who, who, who are disciples of Jesus? Well, it's those who follow his commands. Right? When we look at what it means to be a Christian, we need to really stop, really pause, and ask ourselves, are we looking to follow his commands? Are we looking to prevent ourselves from sinning? Are we actually free from sin? And how can we test this? Well, here's a good test. Christ tells us that his, yoke, his burden is light. He says the Pharisees have put a heavy yoke on the people, but his burden is light. Jeremiah tells us that God will write the law into our hearts. If the law is written in your heart, then it's natural to you. I mean, look at the psalmist. The psalmist tells God, oh, how I love your law. If you're feeling like avoid, that sin is natural, this is the natural state of mankind, not the fallen state of mankind, and it's normal, and God wouldn't expect these things of you, and golly, it's just too much, it's too much of a pain in the butt. It, you might stop and ask yourself, do I really know Christ? Do I really have the law written in my own heart? Folks, if you hate the law, going this is going back to right where we're talking about the beginning. If you feel like, holy smokes, it's impossible, and every time you are avoiding, uh, you're trying to avoid doing something that Christ has told us was sinful, and you can avoid it, but it just feels like such a burden. Well, it might be that you are doing the same thing that Isaiah prophesied would was happening. Your heart is far from God. You praise with your mouth, but the heart is far. It's worth thinking about. All right, God bless.